0: Miriam Gerba invites us to give a critical eye to those who lurk in the darkness and the villains that walk untouchable in broad daylight with her recent essay collection, Creep Accusations and Confessions. This poignant look at historical figures thrown in the media spotlight with their heinous crimes while their victims are left forgotten in the shadows. Gerba asks readers to take a step back and search for the things left unsaid about the women whose lives were erased from the narrative. We sit down with Gerba to talk about the multitudes of the word creep and how we all have the potential of finding ourselves in the moments of participating in creep-like behavior. She also shares her desires to include Santa Maria, California within the literary canon and her undying love for the Real Housewives franchise. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code Genius to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny and I am Veronica. And today we are joined by a brilliant, phenomenal, amazing writer. We cannot believe it. Uh, This is uh, Denny's uh, birthday wish come true uh, for her September book of the month. We have none other than Miriam Gerba. Miriam is a writer and artist. She is the author of the true crime memoir, Mean, a New York Times editor's choice, and uh, the Oprah Magazine ranked Mean as one of the best LGBTQ books of all time. Publishers Weekly describes Gerba as having a voice like no other. Her essays and criticism have appeared in the Paris Review, Time, and Four Columns. She has shown art in galleries, museums, and community centers. She lives in Pasadena, California, and her newest drop creep is out for everybody to consume put in their
1: house give it away for
0: christmas or any <laughs>
1: other holiday everything and anything
0: today, today we're going to talk all about this book and we're so glad that she has joined us on the show how are you doing today Miriam
2: I'm
1: good and and it's Danny's birthday in the, on the 24th yes okay but because I'm a Libra, I celebrate the whole month. Yes. I get it. Okay. <laughs> Happy birthday month to you. Yay. Yes. <laughs> this is one of my presents to myself. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um before we begin, we have a couple questions for you. Something, you know, not not too serious, just to kind of start us off. Um, what was your favorite television show as a child? <gasps>
2: Ooh, I loved TV when I was a kid. I still love TV. So it's really hard for me to narrow it down to one show, but um, like during really early childhood, I liked cartoons, of course. And I really, really liked Tom and Jerry the cartoons Tom and Jerry I had Tom and Jerry clothes I had Tom and Jerry overalls I had Tom and Jerry t-shirts I had Tom and Jerry everything I loved them I related (laughs) a lot to the mouse that's my grandfather's favorite cartoon
1: and to the point that he was like sick and like dying he was like let's put on the mouse and the cat and I'm like Tom and Jerry and he's like yes yes he loves that and like I, I would have to have my son watch that show for him. Um, so as a tourist, you post like a lot of hiking, hiking stuff in the mountains of California. If we were mm-hmm. to go hiking, where are we going tomorrow? Where are we going hiking tomorrow?
2: If I was going to take you hiking tomorrow, I would start at um a place called the Arroyo here in Pasadena. um. And I, I would take you on a hike toward a waterfall, but I would let you communicate to me whether or not you wanted to go all the way to the waterfall Mm -hmm. because it's a hike. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) it's a journey. It's a (laughs) hike. And, and I've taken friends on hikes before and then, and I think it's an easy hike. And then they talk like I took them to Mount Everest. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> that's why I would let you feel it out and communicate to me. Like you would have a hiking safe word. You know what I mean? Yes. Like- <laughs> yeah, because we are
1: unfortunately from Florida. So we live on... Mainly flat. Yes. We have some heels. Small, small <laughs> heels. So yes, you know, communication is key. Um, <laughs> Besides memes, what makes you laugh out loud?
2: What makes me laugh out loud? Oh my gosh. I love to laugh. So all sorts of things make me laugh out loud. I think like, I, you know, I work from home, so I'm... I'm, I'm here, you know, in my home, which, which you can see behind me, um, uh, with my cat a lot and she's always cracking me up. She might make an appearance, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, uh, so she cracks me up and, um, you asked me about TV earlier and, um, and, uh, I love the Real Housewives. <laughs> so... <laughs> Messy, you're always cracking me up for all the wrong reasons.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! Uh, so last last one of our you know little questions. Um, we have a bookstore grammar. Uh, she's named Crema. She recently posted a video about how she is in the process of coming up with a death playlist, a list of songs that would play while she is surrounded by her loved ones. If you uh, she posted a question. What would be the one song that you heard? If you would hear it, it would make you last a little bit longer. Like you would hold on for like two more minutes just to finish this song.
2: Oh my gosh. So I'm dying and I would hold on a little longer because I hear the song. That's what's, oh my goodness. This is such. Whoa. Like I feel like you guys have me by the balls with this question. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I, you know what would make me hold on a little longer would be fuck the police. Like you may be like okay, let's
1: get you out.
0: yes i'm right there with you i'm like, right there with you that's good a good
1: song to have on the playlist <laughs> let, let me drink another glass of water while we're at it <laughs> pretend it's a it, pretend it's like vodka or like you know <laughs> tequila <laughs> oh god hold on where my cane i got to get up for this <laughs> <guy>. yes yes <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 <laughs> Okay, now, now, now you know what, what we came here for. For your book, Creep! Yay! Um, so, creeps come in all shapes and sizes. Thank you for opening the conversation that creeps are not only cisgender males. It's yes. a famous female writer that has catapulted to fame, but also has her own shares of faults. Why was it so critically to, uh, critical to identify and explore the different forms of creeps? in society
2: so when I when I set out to write creep there was of course a particular creep who I was thinking about and Mm. that creep makes his appearance in the title essay which is situated at the end of the collection but like you like you said creeps come in all shapes and sizes and to me creep is a gender neutral category, similar to to the category of dude. I dude everybody. Like I'll even say dude to a plant. You know what I mean? So like, (laughs) (laughs) and I think of creeps similarly and creeps don't even necessarily need to be singular people. Creeps can also be organizations, institutions. We might even describe some cultures as creeps themselves because of how they function. Right. And so um, it was very important to me to, to illustrate that diversity so often uh, diversity as a buzzword is applied in these very positive ways, but we can also have diversities of oppression and mm-hmm. diversities of domination. And so I wanted to show that as well with creep, that we can have diverse figures uh, creeping as well, and that they're not all necessarily even singular human beings. Right. How did how did creep? That title came to you because you know the
1: first one was mean, and it's kind of like this, like you know, it'll punch you in the face and be like, oh, okay.
2: I love words like that. I love words that stick with you and I love words that you can look at from different angles. For example, uh my last book was mean and we've got the meaning of mean um that is a form of sort of petty cruelty, right? She's being mean, but then we've also got um like this philosophical dimension to it. What does something mean, right? And so um, creep functions similarly for me in that it's shorthand for the abuser, for the nasty person, but at the same time, it's this verb and it's this very gothic verb, right? What creeps, what lurks, what oozes, what seeps? So it's it's a verb that I associate with horror and uh, I'm very inspired by both horror and humor. And so I'm trying to signal that through the word creep you
0: your your ability to use English language like it's mind-blowing I wanted to highlight every single line in this book because I'm like damn how is it that someone could come up with a line like this and <laughs> it really was something that I think stuck with me throughout while reading in your book and one and particular instance in your opening chapter you have a line that says that the living expect a lot from dead women it's true (laughs) (laughs) your book lives as It it feels like it lives as part ofrenda and part historical reference for those women whose lives were taken by the hands of men who saw them as property to do as they please. Will you talk about your desire to flip the focus from the men that oftentimes get the light, coupled with this like fanatic obsession and at times forgiveness of these hateful acts, and broadcast the light on the victims and what was taken from them?
2: I love this question and. I so appreciate the um, description of the book itself as an ofrenda, as an offering to to the spirits of those we have lost, particularly through um, through through femicide. And I remember I was once um, listening to uh, some folks discuss um, the death of Nicole Brown. Um, who had been the wife of uh, O.J. Simpson, and and he murdered her. And I recall uh, a conversation that I was listening to. I think it was televised, and somebody referred to her as having become a footnote in her own story. And so often, uh, femicide victims become precisely that. We become. Uh, uh, I'm those of us who, who, who are victimized become these, these footnotes and, and we become eclipsed by the perpetrator and through creep, what I am attempting to do is to not necessarily speak on behalf of, of the victims, because I, I don't think that I'm qualified to do that for many victims, but what I can do is speak in defense of them and I can help to restore some dignity to them. And one way of doing that, I think, is by restoring them to main character status. Mm-hmm. We are all main characters in our own lives. So if we are uh, narrating somebody's story, that story should not be eclipsed by the person who took their life. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm attempting to do that repeatedly for women who have survived Violence and con- continue to live, but also those whose lives were stolen.
0: What are the conversations that you are finding that you're having? I know your your book has only been out for a minute, <laughs> but what have the conversations that you found surrounding that particular part of what you wanted to bring about in the book that you're having with, you know, other podcast shows or other uh, book tours that you have gone on on your on your journeys thus far.
2: So um a lot of people who I've spoken to thus far have indicated to me that um that they found uh the personal account that I wrote uh, about my surviving intimate partner violence they say that I, that they have found it um, difficult to read because of um, the violence that I describe, and um, and that, and I think people have also expressed some surprise about the violence that I describe, and. And I wanted to be very uh, blunt and graphic about that violence, because uh, I think that what women endure when we experience intimate partner violence and intimate authoritarianism, I think that the type of violence that we experience is often um, downplayed. And so I wanted to make uh, the gravity of it, Uh, very real. I wanted that gravity to be in technicolor. And very often, what is left out of descriptions of intimate partner violence is sexual assault. And I want to take sexual assault and put it front and center. And I want to remind people that when we talk about acquaintances being the primary perpetrators of sexual assault, we're not talking about the next door neighbor, we're often talking about the person you share the house with. And we're often talking about the person that you share the bedroom with because Mm -hmm. it's the person who has the most intimate access to you who can also perpetrate the worst harm and who can also really tailor that harm because that person knows you intimately. And so they know how to harm you in ways that are unique to you.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I think one of the conversations that you have in the book with some students in regards to what makes a rapist a rapist. And I think that's such a poignant uh, conversation to have with with children to let them know like this is the characteristics and and don't ever excuse this behavior if it happens to you or if it, you know hopefully you don't be the person to be the perpetrator of that that act, right? And the the conversations that were had within the students themselves about what they thought it was Mm -hmm. and what that loyalty should be like right that part knocked me off my chair Mm -hmm. when i read it but it really shows how violence is talked about how it's taken in how it's digested and and you did a remarkable job with bringing the light to to that and even
1: like when you you know because i am i am married so the even when you were talking and I listened to you talk as well in the audiobook. So um, I when you said like oh you know like how how do you report your husband the one that you share a house with mm-hmm. the one that you're married to the one you sleep in your bed with twenty four seven like how do you report that how do you make somebody believe you mm-hmm. that I had to stop and I just be like <sighs> like. Let, let me just like take a breather and take a moment before I go to work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but those are the questions that you have to ask yourself because you have this idea that the person that you're married to is there because they want to be there and you want to be there with them. And how could there ever be something absolutely. wrong with that? Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that person usually wears a mask. Right. Uh, and, and they're going to remove the mask. Once they know that it's that it's going to be very difficult for you to escape, right? And and this is something that that I want for people to understand that that uh, that that those sorts of perpetrators uh, are very adept at masking, and um and very few people get to see them with mask off.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, your work. As we've already stated, it does an absolute astute job, astute job with it being clear, clean cut, persist, precise to get the reader to understand that the bodies of the women are open season uh, for the patriarchal mindset. With this book, what are your hopes and desires that you have that you want people to understand clearly about autonomy? in a world that is hell-bent on functioning in a patriarchal state of mind.
2: I hope that the book functions as a call to arms and I hope that it lights a fire under some people um, who have felt that perhaps they wanted to take action but but needed a certain spark so I hope that this book spurs people to action, and I hope that it that it um, pushes people to understand that if they want to be a part of uh, a social movement, and let's say uh, you know a social movement that that fights gender-based violence, they don't need to to travel far in order to do that. The people who need your help are likely your neighbors. And so start locally, start with the people in your backyard. And there are likely people already organizing there. And so, and so I hope that, that the book does that. And and I also hope that the book challenges people to reckon with the ways that they have been complicit in being creeps and, um, and in conspiring with creepy institutions, because we don't all function as creeps in identical ways, but all of us bear some responsibility for at some time in our lives, having abetted or facilitated. So we're all implicated in a way. And so I hope that that this also encourages people to examine what I've been referring to as our creep potential. <laughs> Because <laughs> <laughs> every, everybody has it exactly and
1: everybody I think everybody has it like whether whether like you know whether it was taught or whether you've seen it like from adults as a child I think and then you know you get into this slope and you just get into interlope with this like world and then the systems that you are brought up into if you have a job if you're at school you see all of them and then sometimes for for you to survive you kind of just have to like you know you do what what people show you or even though you know that it's not correct so I think I think this serves as you know as a as a good wake-up call for a lot of people Mm -hmm. thank you so the I am astonished with the research that you have put in this book because like we looked at the back and there are sources for everything I you know it's it, it almost echoes to the phenomenon you know if there's no evidence there can be no creeps and they can't be convicted with their crimes mm-hmm. like it's like yeah. you know if you question this fact Miriam has something for you in the back like it's yes. it from somewhere how important was it was it to have these sources available for the readers and how much work was placed in all these research and readings
2: um I am a very sort of historically oriented writer and thinker. And when I approach an essay, my entry point is usually history. And so I don't think of what I do necessarily as simply or singularly um, personal essay or personal history. I like to locate myself and my family within larger histories because time didn't start when i was born right and so and so i want to i want to uh, uh look over my shoulder before i look forward um and so i tend to survey um a lot of historical, uh, resources. I look at primary and secondary sources and, and I approach essays as a puzzle of sorts, and I'm looking for various pieces. And so I tend to assemble, uh, sources at first, but then I'm continuing to research as I'm writing as well. And, um, I, I write a lot, uh, about gender-based violence, and so often when we when we when we speak about gender-based violence, we're asked for evidence, right? Uh, prove it, prove it, prove it. And so um, and so the the citations at the the back of the book are are that body, right? It's my habeas corpus. I'm showing the right. body, um, and so I. Uh, I feel like I, I, I really covered my ass that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and
1: and it, it's so very important because it's like, you know, I I like historical fiction. So I I I I it's not for everybody because people be like, Denny, why are you reading all that sorts of stuff? We just want to know the story. Did she get on with a guy or not? Or did she get the girl? <laughs> I'm like, no, you know. I think what makes up a society is very important to like, you know, as a person, like where you are placed and mm-hmm. where your standing is and what happens to you. So I do really appreciate that. Maybe it's just for like the nerds like me, but you know, <laughs> and, and
0: I, I've always felt like history, like History teachers, people who really love talking about history have always been the best storytellers. And like reading your work, it really reminded me of like reading Imani Perry's work, of like yours. Y'all have this way of writing history to not make it boring. And to (laughs) be able to in the way that you've used it, where you're where you're talking about these uh, very delicate topics and yet braiding your life within this story and this back and forth and how we can also hold a mirror up to ourselves I think it's a remarkable thing that you have done with this work. Um, one part that really stuck out to me the most was the essay that focused on your the the life of your cousin Desiree um, mm-hmm. is one I that so I much. know all too well, um, mm-hmm. the prison system was not made for rehabilitation, uh, but to be a place to break the spirit of those who trauma was never taken into consideration, right? And it's so easy for families to ignore those who have struggled with drugs and find themselves in prison. It's easy to just discount them and that this is where they're at and you just forget about them. But your connection with your cousin was it is a strong bond. What is the meaning a family for you especially in this particular connection with the women and how you decide to share that relationship within your book.
2: So family is incredible incredibly meaningful to me and I have a profound loyalty to my family that doesn't exclude them from accountability. <laughs> Um, and I think that that one way of showing love to my family is is by inviting family members to accountability. And I say that for both those who are living and those those who have passed and those who are now um, ancestors. And um, the essay that I wrote about my cousin Desiree is unique um, in contrast with all of the other essays in the collection, because it is an essay that she urged me to write. So in a sense, we could say that my cousin Desiree commissioned this essay. And she did so because she was very bothered by how she existed in the historical record. She existed in the record um, as somebody who had been, um Uh, a subject for crime reporters. So she's been written about as a criminalized person. And then she has also um, found her way into the historical record through criminalization by the state of California. And that is not the entirety of her existence. Right. And Um, she was able to have her record expunged, but there is still sort of like, um, there are still skeletons that haunt her. And what she wanted to do was be able to uh, have her dignity restored and have her humanity restored. And so what she did was she asked me to tell the story of how she became criminalized, how she became a gangster. And, And she wants it to be known that no child um, fantasizes about prison, about landing in a cell in a cage someday. No child fantasizes about um, becoming a a, a gangster. I mean, they might fantasize about becoming a movie gangster, but not not an actual gangster. That's a difficult, difficult life. Mm -hmm. And so she wanted to explain how it is that a female gangster is made. And when we were kids, we formed a two-girl a, a two girl gang. Um, and we called ourselves Pocas Pero Locas, which means the people insane. I'm gonna join that group. Oh my gosh. We would throw like PPL with our fingers and everything. Um. See, I'm all about it. I'm gonna make us glitter shirts with like sequence and a jacket <laughs> well, i'm down so, <laughs> and so and so what what i attempt to do through that essay is to illustrate the the diverging paths that we took and one of one of the um things that i explained in the essay is that i in part studied history when i went to university because i wanted to understand um, the dilemma that Mexicans and Mexican Americans face in California and why it is that we're so frequently criminalized. And in hindsight, what I can now see is that I was looking for my cousin. I was looking for my cousin in the historical record and I was looking for clues, clues about us in the historical record.
1: Also, because we're talking about family, it's, I think, one of the first times that I've seen, like, Santa Maria in, like, a book. And yeah. it's, it's very close to my heart because my godparents, like, when I got married, and my husband's godparents are from Santa Maria. So when you were describing, like, you know, the, the, the strawberry picking and all of that, because I had those questions within my head. I'm like, so who takes care of these people? What happens to them? I'm like, is that a child? Like, cause we were driving around, but I was, I maybe it was like five, six years ago when I first saw it. I'm just like, what, what is going on? But you know, it was something that was like, I need to come back to it. And then I saw it back in your book and I'm like, it was a full circle moment since we're talking about family.
2: Interesting. Okay. So you have a connection to my hometown. Absolutely. Oh and, my goodness. And- yeah. Yeah. My- my town hardly ever enters literature and so i i wanted to 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 write santa maria into the canon so we live in a
1: in a cancel culture society and being honest is very hard honesty is something that we've associated with your writing credibility is elusive to information seeker these days you know like i e why trump got elected your own work your life and somebody else's is very hard how did you establish this like sense of self and confidence um that gives readers this feeling like you know you can't fuck with Miriam Gerba but she'll because sometimes she can come for you but you know she's gonna tell you the truth
2: um wow I'm I'm very honored by that assessment of my character I have I have to say that um I I think that the voice that I have developed um, was one that was developed in anger and frustration. And, um, it was one that was developed as a result of being of having my reality and having um, the truth that I was kind of quietly expressing at first be denied. And as it was denied, I got angrier and angrier and with that anger came inspiration. And I think, you know, there are, I I hear a lot of people um, vilify anger and almost villainize it as if it is the the worst emotion or a dangerous emotion. And I think that in the wrong hands, anger can be very dangerous, but I think that anger is a really, really, really important emotion for women. Um, And it's one that we're often discouraged from embracing. And, I was able to escape from intimate partner violence once I allowed myself to become angry. And I hear that so often from other women that that, that anger is sort of like, um, it's like an ember that we hold inside of us. And that fire is, is what enables us to fight. And I think that that is why there is such a patriarchal emphasis on squelching um, that particular ember, but I think that you know it's important for us to nurse it, and so uh, I I do think that 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 I owe a lot of my honesty and my fight to um to the longevity of my anger.
1: <laughs> and yeah, you made a good point about rage. You know, like you had you had it one in your chat. You know, one of the essays that rage can be a really good thing because it helps you you know, propel something that you didn't think that you'd be able to
2: do if you were just quietly like, okay, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. Because when I experienced IPV for a very long time when I was with that abuser, um, uh, I was confused. I was in the state of confusion. And in that state of confusion, I was kind of approaching him almost as if he were a puzzle that I needed to figure out. And if I could just solve this puzzle, then the abuse would stop but then i realized no that chaos is is part of um it's part of it that chaos is part of a fog and once you turn away from the abuser and you stop trying to crack the code or figure out the enigma and you 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 acknowledge there is no enigma there there's no mystery here i'm simply dealing with the perpetrator and they have uh systematically attempted to destroy my dignity once I was was ready to embrace that then I was ready to fight
1: and you fight hard girl (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) um yeah and I was taught to fight hard by my family too like (laughs) that's true by my cousin like like she's my cheerleader too so never go down Mm -hmm. Uh uh-uh no, <laughs> we know how to scrap.
0: <laughs> Y'all watch out. I mean, but the police is gonna wake up. You know she's ready to fight. Um, Joan Didion. Uh, that work is uh someone Joan Didion's work is something that I have not given myself to dive in. It's it's not an opportunity that I've been acquainted with getting to know her. Uh, her name hasn't really popped up until as of late when I hear t- people talk about her in, in her work. Uh, but it is one that when people talk about it is talk with this huge reverence. Um, she's it's held in this like highest regard for her writing. What does it mean for you as a writer to not only be, be critical of the works and art of people, but to also view with a critical eye, the works and art of people that we love or aspire to be like
2: in some kind of manner. I think that idols are dangerous. Um, And I also think that it is dangerous to create uh, aristocracies. And I do think that in the United States we have these de facto aristocracies and we have them in the literary world. Um and and I think that I'm um, Didion is one of those literary aristocrats. And um and in the essay that I wrote about her which is titled The White Onion I do acknowledge her as what you know we could call a literary ancestor, in the sense that I came across her writing when I was a teenager, and and at an age where I was uh, incredibly impressionable, mm-hmm. and her writing did make an indelible impression on me. Um, And there were two things in particular that that were impressed upon me by her work. It was her uh, Elevation of California. Uh, I had not ever read somebody's writing about California that um, captured uh, sort of the atmosphere of the state um, with such sort of granular authenticity. And I was utterly seduced by that. And I realized through her writing that California could be a muse and it didn't have to be only Didion's muse. It could be my muse too. And I'm really, really loyal to place. And so I began to sort of fantasize about writing my California because of of her writing. Her voice is also very cool. And, uh, and I sometimes joke that she writes in a style that I call California bitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I feel like, and I feel like I belong to this lineage of California bitch. <laughs> and, so, and so I do, in a sense, have to give the woman her flowers for that. However, She's human and as a human subject, she's flawed. And as I began to consume more and more of her work, I began to be bothered by what I call the racial grammar in her work, which um, which uh, tends to assert a very specific racialized hierarchy that places uh, uh, white settlers at, at the very top and um she has um uh you know there's there's racism present in her work I'll just put it very bluntly there's a lot of racism that's present in her work and 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 that racism is is difficult it makes it difficult for me to continue to uh embrace her because it's sort of like uh embracing a thorny bush it's like mm-hmm. You know, on on the one hand, yes, it's got these beautiful roses, but to embrace it is going to be to injure myself.
1: Right.
2: So I'm trying to um to to paint uh sort of um a critique of her that is fuller than I think many of the critiques that have been issued because I do think many critics skirt that racialized aspect of her writing.
1: And- and so many other writers yeah and that's why I think I can't like you know in my head I'm like oh you know I think that's where I really thought like you are very honest in all of that because like yeah you you call them out as it is and because it it's really what it is you know like there's no other way of putting it you know but you didn't discount the fact that she did what she had to do even for you you know yes it's kind of like you have to read all the parts to understand everything. And it's okay. Like, I think that that type of criticism, I think, should be normalized, especially for, you know, white writers. Like, why are we so afraid of, you know, saying like, oh, this book, there's something problematic about this book, or there's something problematic about how this person writes. I think it's okay, because that's how we grow. And that's how, you know, all these systems can be erased. But, you know, you're doing the exactly. hard work. You're doing the hard exactly. work thank you and you're inviting
0: (laughs) us to do it with you you want us to do it with you because you know when you not you're not not only the the white writers or the white musicians or the white artists it's like you have to look at everybody because you know like as of late we've seen a lot of people come out there you're just like oh my god you Mm -hmm. know this is somebody that we held to high esteem like Uh Bill Cosby or you know like Mm -hmm. how Chris Brown is perceived and it's Mm -hmm. just like you have those people who are in these camps that are go die hard for these people no matter what, and it's like wait a minute come on you can't just attribute it just to the work like you have to think about the person who is giving us this this work right this art that we are uh, you know taking in and absorbing and making a daily part of our life in some kind of way. So it is absolutely. very important. And I'm glad that you, that you talk about having to like dissect someone and say like, is this something that we need to be celebrating? Like,
2: yeah, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm I'm questioning uh, the perpetual celebration. It's like right. the celebration is appropriate at times, but not a perpetual party. No,
1: right. right. <laughs> yeah. Because
2: we can't grow if we're having a perpetual party. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you write like nonfiction, whether
1: it be essays or memoirs, people assume they know all of you, you know, (laughs) oh yeah, this is Miriam. How do you maintain the sense of privacy with all of that you
2: shared in your books? So I, I do put a lot of myself into my work, but there are specific lines that, that I do draw. Um, and there are, um, there are certain aspects of myself that um, that I won't write about, and uh, that I may never write about. Um, and and it is strange to be uh, a confessional writer um, because, like like you were like you were alluding to earlier, often the reader um, develops a sense of intimacy with, with the persona that they're meeting on the page. Um, but that persona that they're meeting on the page, uh, is being mediated through art. And so as much as a reader may feel that they know the confessional writer, they know the writer, but they don't know the person. And so there, there, there are aspects of myself that, that I do, that I do hold Close to my heart, and away, and away from the public, and that I do shield. And there, there was a time in my life that I think uh, I, I, I treated my life um, as as something that I would be willing to sort of um, uh, examine completely in sort of a public context. But I think, especially having survived IPV, there are now um, aspects of myself. That, that will forever remain really private.
0: Yeah, it makes me think about, you know, I, I reading memoirs or or anything that is um, uh, you know, aligned to it is something that I really love to do because it gives us a, a an opportunity to get to know a certain aspect of someone's life, right? But you can't not know the entire person, especially when you have not been in relationship with that person. And exactly. that relationship is so important But when you are out on a book tour and people are coming up to you and asking you questions about certain aspects that you may have touched on just minor and they want to go deeper. How do you approach those those instances where you're like, I don't want to this is not the appropriate time or how do you do that with those people?
2: You know, it differs and. And, and it differs according to like the context and according to the person. For example, um, I have had survivors approach me and um, want to connect as fellow survivors. And so they'll disclose to me that they're survivors. And, um, and that sometimes can like invoke an immediate connection and and if I feel it because I'm I, I'm I'm a person who tends to go with her gut. If I feel that, I'll go with it. Um, but then I've also had had the the opposite happen where I've been blindsided by questions that um are are shockingly um invasive mm-hmm. um. And that I also have found just uh, really strange. Like, for example, I have been asked about sexual assault. Um, And I have been asked about, for example, my healing from it. Um, But in a very odd way, I was asked by somebody if I was over it. And I thought to myself, what an odd question. Are you over it? as if it's a cold, you know what I mean? Like, cause we get over colds or maybe like, you know you date somebody for a few months and then you get dumped and then you get over it. But, you know, uh, to be asked about, you know one of the most horrible events in your life and then whether or not you're over it it's just, it's such an odd and, and intimate and invasive question. So, so um, in situations like that I I try to pivot toward um, sometimes educating that person. Um, Although I have at times turned the question around on the person Mm. and asked, you know, have you had a similar experience and are you healed from it? And then when I've done that, there's usually utter shock (laughs) because Mm. they weren't expecting the question and they feel invaded by the question. And then they come to realize Oh, okay. Yeah, this, is, this isn't this is territory into which I should have entered. Right. <laughs> they didn't The door read your book. closed.
1: Yeah, they didn't read your book then because you even mentioned it in the book because you're like, you know, like if you have been a victim of assault, like you would always be, you know, yeah. it's not like yeah. it can be erased or like it just can disappear.
2: Yeah. Yeah, um, it's a way to live inside of you forever. And it's not as if, it's not as if a person is like in a perpetually triggered state, right. but I think of it as almost like a Jack in the box. You know what I mean? Where you never know when it's going to pop out, but it will, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. That trauma, that trauma yeah. response. Yeah.
0: Um, last week, author Rashid Newsom uh, was in conversation with Tracy Thomas of the Stacks podcast. And he mentioned the use of footnotes in his book. He said that he knows that when he's writing, uh, that he will make mention of something that some readers may not understand. And he gave, like, if I'm talking about Luther Vandross, I know I'm reaching back to this gay Black man that I know is reading this book who can understand what it is that I'm talking about. Um, but he said he uses the footnotes to help those who may not get it. And your use of footnotes is minor throughout within the book, and your use of using Spanish to tell your stories is is heavy throughout. Will yeah. you speak to us about choosing not to give a play-by-play or a translation of everything of the cultural experiences, uh, for people, um, and why it's important for people to be about the work of reading as a reader and not reading as a bystander?
2: Oh, what a great question. Um, so. My my existence has never been restricted to a monolingual existence. Um, uh, I was raised in a household where there were two languages always being spoken. And so I don't have a first language, I have first languages. And I'm a person who exists bilingually. And when I write personal essay, I'm going to write using the languages that I know and, and I live sort of the Spanglish life. And so to me, um, to be able to best express myself requires that I do so Spanglishly. And that's why there, there is, there is, um, Spanish strewn throughout or woven throughout, um, a lot of my work. And the reason that that I abstain from uh, translation is that um, historically uh, uh, that type of work, that type of Spanglish work has um, been uh, otherized on the page. And what I mean by that is that if, um, if, if, a, let's say, a uh, Mexican-American writer publishes a work that is predominantly in English, but has some Spanish language words in it, historically, those words have been italicized. Mm-hmm. And to me, the italicization of those words others the words. Mm-hmm. And so there's a visual othering happening. Um, and what I'm attempting to do is to demonstrate how seamless the existence is for those of us who are bilingual people, that we're not transitioning back and forth between languages, we fuse them so that they nearly become a new language. It's almost like a creolization. So I'm doing it, so I'm writing in that way to honor those of us who think this way and who exist in this way because we so often don't find that on the page. Yeah, and to me,
1: because I'm Filipino, so I speak Tagalog and English, and some of the some of the um words see i can't even say it cuz i'm like thinking in in like tagalog some of some of it is you know heavily spanish based cuz of yes. colonization um so i really appreciate like when i see it i can just you know you would read password i'm like wait that's something different and it kind of like clicks in i'm like oh yeah i'm not alone in this journey cuz sometimes you know my, my tongue has not adjusted because I'm thinking in a different language and it comes out in English and it's like all wonky and people <laughs> make fun of me, but I'm like, you don't understand, you know, sometimes you think in a different language yes. and you can't it before it comes out in your mouth. And it's very yeah. hard.
2: Yeah. Yes. And, and I, and I've, and I've, um been like an audience to that my whole life because of my mother she came to the United States in her twenties and then learned English in her twenties. And so I've, I've watched her struggle with that her whole life. And, and I've watched people's responses to her as well. And I've watched how, you know, some of the responses have been really cruel. Um, and, and, and I imagine that, that you, that you've also had some experiences <laughs> even like last week
1: like i said blueford and it's supposed to be blueford and i'm like i don't i don't fucking know like <laughs> it, it's the <a> name <laughs> of a road. so because i was i was just trying to tell somebody which was like a good like um they're asking like oh denny where can i get like really good tacos and i'm like oh go to like you know like by blueford and i'm like but they're like where the fuck is that and i'm like and i showed him oh it's blueford and i'm like well you go get your tacos then. Bye. <laughs> so uh we're at the part of our
0: conversation that we like to ask everybody that comes on our show this question we know that this is not a uh, a solid forever answer it can change it can change after you give it it could change time you close your computer but we give you two options we want to know either your top five favorite books of all time or The top five things that you're very excited about, which we'll give you a mix. It could be books. It can be TV. It can be music. It could be whatever it is, but whatever, whichever of those questions you want to answer, you can choose.
2: Okay. So I'm going to do, um, top five things that I'm excited about. All right. Yay. All right. So, um, and, and, and I'm not going to order them though, because like, I don't, I don't think I can. So it's just my top five, but not in, not in order. Right. So I'm, um, I, I was raised by a dad who's very anti-cat, right? So we didn't have a cat growing <laughs> up. My dad's very pro dog and my mom just kind of went along with it. Right. So, so we didn't have cats, but last year I got a cat And like, I'm so in love with this cat. This cat is amazing. And I feel so deprived now that I had a childhood free of cats. You know what I mean? (laughs) And then my dad like propagandized me to be like this anti-cat person when there was a cat person inside me all along. So so I'm really, really excited about my cat. Um, I have been touring like for the last week and I came home yesterday. And so I was so excited to see my cat. Oh. Her name is Cholula like the hot oh. sauce. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's Cholula who I'm really excited about. Then when when I was in Washington DC I was um, I was having pizza with some fellow queers and we were talking about Real Housewives and <laughs> and these fellow queers, uh, we were talking about which franchises were our favorite. And these fellow queers were telling me that I really need to watch Real Housewives of St. Louis mm-hmm. because they said it is all about Jen Shaw. And I have not watched the St. Louis franchise. So I'm super excited <laughs> to dive in to Real Housewives of St. Louis. I can't wait because like, I'm really into Real Housewives of Orange County and really into Real Housewives of New Jersey. I love Real Housewives of New Jersey. They're just such, they're, they're so, they're such awful people. So. Um- <laughs> have you, have you any desire to go to the conventions? I do, but here's <laughs> what I want to do. I want to get somebody to pay me to write about it. Uh, and then what I want to do is yes. some like racialized analysis or racial yes. critique, BravoCon. Like yes, I'm itching it. so badly to do that. If somebody's listening to this podcast and wants to pay me to do that,
1: can
0: you, can I'm, I'm clear, I'm, you, I'm your girl. Yeah, it's gonna happen.
2: Can, can somebody just
1: do that? I mean, it's <laughs> selfishly for me also maybe a little bit for Miriam, but you know, we, we gotta, we gotta keep, we gotta keep the essays coming.
2: <laughs> we can't be in I drought. It. I love it. Okay. Third favorite thing is I'm, um, I am, I am like a lip balm addict. I, I, <laughs> my lips get dry really easily. I think cause I lick them a lot. Mm-hmm. So and there there I go licking them. And so I love Maybelline baby lips. This is totally turning into a commercial for Maybelline <laughs> And when I was on tour, every drugstore that I went to was out of my 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 my, my flavor, which is cherry. So so I love my baby lips. Um, and then I'm, um, I'm a big time plant nerd. I love plants and I love gardening and like, I feel like plants keep me sane. And so, um, and so like after I finish this podcast, I'm actually going to go out for a hike and like say hello to all the plants that I've been away from for a week. I'm such a plant nerd. Um, and then let's my house and water them. (laughs) (laughs) I love watering them. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I, I just was, I love to be plant parents. Yes. Then, um, and then one more thing. Um, I'll say the last thing that like I'm really hyped about is coffee. Like I owe everything to coffee. Like my personality is coffee. My writing is coffee. I owe all of it to coffee. If you were to take coffee away, there would be nothing. There would there'd be no books, there'd be no personality, there'd be no getting out of bed, there would just be no Miriams. So, yeah.
1: I understand that. I was, I mean, you know, my grandfather loved coffee. I took a little break in college because I was having palpitations to the point that I'm asleep, but I'm really not asleep. That yeah, was bad. So, I've been there. Yeah. So, but we, we came back. And I, you know, as a cold brew bitch. Hello, yeah. nice to meet you. I love it so much. Like I do my little, you know, it's a it's a routine, even though I'm like, I gotta do this again. But I love it every morning. I'm like, it's ready, ready It's a go. ritual. It's a ritual. Yeah. Yes. You, like coffee makes makes Denny sometimes function as a mom, as exactly have, like, coffee makes me nice. Coffee mm-hmm. makes me like function.
2: Hmm. i understand I yeah guess. like coffee makes me smart like i'm not really smart it's all in like the espresso <laughs> <laughs> oh man well
0: miriam thank you so much uh for sharing your time with us today i know you've been very busy within the last week and and will be again tomorrow. So we are so thankful for uh you stepping in and sharing this conversation with us about this wonderful book. We wish you well on everything yes. and all the future books and hopefully uh the Bravo cons to come.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm uh, gonna watch you. out for that. Yes, I'm, I'm it's gonna do- and it's been said. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Like, um, I found you um in a book where it says like letters to a writer to writers of color and i was blown away with that oh. so i was like what else has this person done and when i saw that you were in the cover of your own book i'm like we're going to talk to her <laughs> oh thank do- you so much i th- these are the essays that make me like love nonfiction so much mm-hmm. like, thank
2: you so much so. this has been fantastic this has been a very fun experience i love the both of you and i love the name of your podcast oh yes. thank you it's <laughs> it's, it's it from like
1: tank clan name uh, generator, name so generator.
2: Be it beautiful it. <laughs> Be beautiful <laughs> all right
0: you take care you have a wonderful rest of your, your enjoy afternoon. enjoy your hike
1: thank you Bye. Yeah. bye, bye. bye. We
0: hope you enjoyed our show.
1: Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Our theme song that you're nodding your
0: head along to was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T.
1: Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon.
0: Deuces.